and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fosbero. Today I'm in Newquay in Cornwall to meet the co-founders of Waterhall, a young social enterprise which transforms the ocean's most harmful plastic, abandoned fishing nets, into stylish sunglasses and sustainable eyewear. Frustrated by what's known as ghost gear, abandoned daily on their beaches and coastline, marine conservationists Harry Dennis and Gavin Parker searched for a solution. Ironically, they discovered the very properties which make discarded fishing gear such a problem and a threat to the ocean and marine life, its abundance, strength, durability and so on, make it a perfect material to work with. After months of design trials, errors and material failures, the team finally produced their first functional prototype five years ago and are recycling nets from all over Cornwall. They're also collaborating with the Environmental Justice Foundation to take their fishing gear recycling scheme to the coastline of Ghana. And they've won praise from Sir David Attenborough. Harry and Gavin, it really is a treat to be in your beautiful part of the world here on the rugged North Cornish coast. Gavin, how much does this area mean to you? Thank you. Yeah, it means everything to me. I mean, I grew up in Cornwall, in Perranporth. It's a beach that's nearly three miles long. And I was very lucky to spend my entire childhood in and around the ocean. And were you just fascinated with the ocean from being a young child? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So with the marine life, you know, I was just rock pooling and surfing, kayaking, living and breathing it really. And do you think you realised at that young age that it was actually quite special or perhaps for you, is that just the norm? That's where you grew up? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, perhaps it's uh, we're a little bit skewed by being surrounded by it in Cornwall. You know, everyone here has a, an innate connection to the ocean. Yeah, to me, it's very special. And Harry, what does it mean to you, this area? So I grew up incredibly jealous of people like Gavin because I grew up around kind of like 45 minutes from the coastline. And so it was always within reach, but it always then had that pull and it was always, you know, not quite there. And that really drove that kind of real hunger. For me, I developed a love of the ocean through surfing. And there's always been that kind of drive and that passion. And it starts with that connection. And then throughout that, you know, you want to spend more time. Us as surfers, we become a little bit obsessed. But that then grows over time because with your experience, you can't help but notice some of the the challenges and threats that are present in our ocean. And that relationship starts to kind of grow and yeah, take in a more of kind of a protective form as well, wanting to take action. You and Gavin met through Surfers Against Sewage. So I would imagine there is a very good reason to want to pull together when you see what's happening to the sea that you're surfing in. Yeah, everyone's got their own kind of initial story about how they developed that connection, but it always starts with that. Everyone you speak to, yeah, if they're making change in this world, trying to do something good, it normally starts with that connection and then progresses because, you know, we've all seen it. It's right there in front of us. So yeah, that definitely unites us all. What was it for you, Gavin? Was it fairly heartbreaking as you grew up to realise pollution and and what's going on with our ocean? Was there a moment when you realised, perhaps as a young lad, that hang on a second here, there's stuff going on that's destroying the beauty that you've grown up with? Yeah, that is exactly it. That's exactly my motivation is in my relatively short lifetime. I've seen a dramatic increase in the amount of plastic pollution just on the beach I grew up on. It's quite well known for, particularly at one end, collecting a lot of pollution, plastic bottles, fishing gear, whatever it is. That has massively increased over the years, particularly in recent times. So 
went traveling, went to university, came back and I thought I need to do something about this. And is that how Waterhall came about through conversations with, well, with people obviously like Harry? Exactly that. Yeah. So we were both working for a marine conservation charity, Surfers Against Sewage, because they are one of the UK's leading charities tackling plastic pollution. And that was a campaign I was working on. That was where my passions lied. And yeah, that's where me and Harry met. And Harry, how did you come up with the idea for Waterhall and trying to make something like sunglasses and eyewear out of something that's being abandoned and wrecking our marine and sea life? So this issue of ghost gear, it came up time and time again. I'd had several experiences even before Surface Against Sewage where this issue really kind of made an impact on me, not just here in Cornwall. I was doing research for, for my degree. We we're out in Malaysia studying one of the coral reefs there. I'd been working for about three months on this experiment and <laughs> towards the end, this ghost fishing net washed through the study site. It not only disrupted my whole experiment, which was personally very annoying, but just seeing the destruction to the coral reef that I was there to study, that just made such a huge impact on me and seeing it underwater it's suddenly, it's right in your face and it's a real, I mean, it's a wall of death basically, but it's hidden. It's out of view. It's out of sight. And then thereafter, even if it's only a tiny strand, seeing those, you know, often bright green little strands on every single beach we visited. And whenever we went exploring out to the Cornish coastline, finding that ghost gear was that number one thing, there was a real personal experience there. And then as we kind of progressed that, through Surface Against Sewage, we got that zoomed out national perspective. They have the largest network of people beach cleaning in the, well, I think in the world actually. And there's incredible insight and data gathered through that. And the number one thing that people were finding and recovering was discarded and lost fishing gear. That was really shocking to me. And it kind of reinforced that kind of desire to do something. And then on the flip side, a real kind of asset to surfing sewage is there not only the community kind of grassroots action, but it's also at the other end, the top end, working to push legislation and drive change from the top down. My role there was around science policy and I had direct insight. We were going into parliament, we were hosting the all-party parliamentary group on ocean conservation. So getting these change makers together to discuss the issue of plastic pollution. But I found that there was really a disconnect between what that community was finding, what we knew from the science and the data was causing the most harm and what was being discussed, what was, you know, what was being pushed in the legislation that was more around your plastic coffee stirrer and your straw, but there was an opportunity to tackle what was the most abundant and the most harmful form of plastic. And I thought that's really where we should be focusing our attention. Just for those who don't know the term ghost gear, what are we talking about when we're talking about ghost gear? So it's a term that's given to any form of lost, discarded or abandoned fishing gear. So that could take the form of nets, of pots and traps, ropes. And the real problem here is this is materials that are made out of plastic. They're going to last in the ocean for hundreds and hundreds of years. But their one purpose is to catch and kill marine life. And it doesn't matter if they are no longer attached to a boat. They continue with that purpose. 
And the reason they have that term ghost gear is because they continue in that cycle of catching marine life. And that's going to continue for the lifespan of that net, that form of plastic, that trap. When you put it that way and you understand how that loop is just going to continue unless action is taken, whatever it catches, that just ends up attracting more marine life to come in and investigate. That gets caught. It's an endless cycle. That's why it has that term and that's why it's such a problem. And that's what really motivated us to tackle it. I'm also curious, Harry, to know when you were doing your project, what damage that ghost gear did to the coral reef that you were studying? Obviously, when we think and you, you know, there's there's all these pictures of the impacts that it has. And first and foremost, you think of the marine life that is the fish, the sharks, the marine mammals that unfortunately, you know, become entangled in this, but it's even wider than that because this attaches to the seabed, it attaches to the coral reef habitat, it rips apart in tandem with the wave action, whatever's in its path. Until you've seen that destruction, it's really quite hard to kind of put it into words, but it's a real eye-opener. Gavin, I'm from Grimsby, so I'm from a fishing community myself. These nets are meant to last for decades and decades and decades. So why do they get abandoned by the fishermen? And what's that point when they're no good for catching fish? And then presumably the damage that Harry's talked about happens because they remain in the ocean catching stuff they shouldn't be. But why do the fishermen not need them anymore? And why do they abandon them? Hmm. There's a few reasons. One, simply, you know, a net or rope or line could get snagged on the seabed and it's dangerous for the fishermen to try and reel that in, particularly a small boat, and they're faced with this problem where they're going to have to cut it loose. That's going to be a small number of cases, really. The main reason is because these have a use life in terms of their effectiveness at catching fish. So typically after six months to a year, of use, a net will build up a bioalgal film on it, which fish detect, and they'll eventually be deterred once enough of this is built up on the net. And therefore, the net's not as useful anymore. You're not catching as many fish. And the fishermen kind of faced with this economic choice of getting a new net or continuing to use this one that's less and less effective. So you have this net that's no longer very useful. How do I get rid of it? Typically, well, in the UK, a net costs £300 per tonne to send to landfill. And so there's not really an incentive for you to bring that back to port and dispose of it correctly when there's that free option of just chucking it over. So you just dump it. Mm. Well, that's what a lot of people do. Yeah. And I think a lot of them, you know, this isn't shaming the fishing industry. A lot of them don't want to be doing that. Of, Of course, it's affecting their livelihoods in the long run because a lot of them are aware of the ghost gear issue and issues with abandoning fishing gear overboard and the damage that would cause fish stocks. But it's an economic choice and fundamentally that's often what humans (laughs) come down to. (laughs) And as you've been exploring your coastline and before we started recording, you said you like to go kayaking and explore all the hidden little coves that visitors like me will probably never see. Did you suddenly realise that you were seeing a lot more of this material in the beauty spots that you were exploring? Yeah, definitely. We'd often try and go to most remote places, get away from people, particularly in the summer down here. And we just love exploring. And those remote coves are often the places that really accumulate plastic pollution. And certainly in the couple of decades I've been doing it, this stuff lasts for a very long time in the ocean. And a lot of the stuff that's washing up here 
could have already been floating around for 20 years. What's it like, Harry, when you're out kayaking and you go to somewhere really stunning and beautiful and tucked away and then you find all the ghost gear? I would imagine there's a sense of heartbreak with some of that. Definitely. There's this kind of absolute mismatch between the beauty of where you are and what you're seeing and what's quite unique to you because no one else has been here in a couple of weeks, you know, when we're on those really remote coves. But then seeing that plastic, you innately know that it should not be there and it's wrong. And it's so hard to describe that feeling. It's gutting, discovering something so beautiful and then knowing that we've ruined it. So how do we go from seeing the abandoned ghost gear to making really cool and beautiful, long-lasting sunglasses and eyewear? How did that all happen, Harry? What was the tipping point that made you think we need to do something and this is the way forward? Here's the thing. Plastic is amazing. So we're not shaming plastic here. We believe that we're the problem. Humans, we are the ones who have produced far too much of this and haven't valued it. Plastic itself is this incredible material. It's so strong. It's so durable. And so really, I think, and this is where it all started, that we were looking at this from the wrong way around. We really just needed to value this and suddenly this would all make sense. So, you know, the analogy that really prompted this was someone said, well, imagine that all this plastic was actually 20 pound notes floating around out there. How differently would all of us react? Behavior would be so different. We'd all just, you know, I'm sure it'd be solved in a year's time. So it's really, there's this kind of value that's driving this problem. So if we can create value from this, then suddenly that reworks this whole equation. That was the concept. And therefore the mission was to turn this plastic into something that was really purposeful, valued, and could kind of represent this mission. So there was a lot of brainstorming. I remember this kind of going on (laughs) (laughs) in the offices, but eyewear, it's really ticked a lot of boxes. Firstly, it has that real use and value. Like it's something that we'll take care of in some parts to the fact that we're literally wearing these on our faces, right? And that was something that also could really change perceptions of this as waste. If it's something that can meet those performance requirements of being on your face and through all the rigors that we all throw at our eyewear and, and our sunglasses, then that's really showing its true potential. I think that there's also an element of we wanted to create something that would help people to have that same connection with the outdoors and the ocean, ultimately, that took us on that journey from, you know, wanting to connect to the ocean and therefore eventually wanting to protect it too. Who came up with the idea of sunglasses? Who actually said, let's make sunglasses? I remember shouting this out and I don't think anyone believed me that, you know, it's one of those passing comments, but I'm one of those types of people who gets an idea and I just run with it and I obsess over it. And that's always been my nature. I've always been a bit of an entrepreneur. It's kind of just been in my DNA I was that kid in school who's always got a bit of a side hustle going on. I was doing international imports when I was 14 and selling things online. And I've always loved kind of finding those opportunities. That was always something that I just thought as something to support me through university or whatever as a side hustle. It never really kind of struck me as something that I would focus on. I was really focused on marine biology, making an impact. But actually, suddenly 
all of those skills, all of those experiences came into use and those two kind of worlds collided and actually that's what I really love and that's what I'm good at and I just entered a bit of a rabbit hole I can see Gavin's <laughs> starting to nod but this was kind of like my mission I really wanted to prove people wrong that this could actually happen this wouldn't just be a passing comment I could create something and I remember <laughs> showing these various kind of like iterations and and attempts and they weren't great initially and it was really trying to adapt a whole new process because recycling that to date was kind of either done at a level of really industrial hundreds of tons or it was done at a tiny level like think 3d printing and it was really uh trying to fill in the gaps and trying to create a process that came somewhere in the middle of that and essentially turn this into something that was was useful so yeah let's get into the process I yeah guess. let's get into the process i think gavin's quite probably good at describing the process but i was just thinking sunglasses seem to make a lot of sense because if you live somewhere like cornwall lots of people are really into the outdoors a lot of people are into their surfing and actually sunglasses make a lot of sense here don't they particularly strong ones you're dealing with the salt from the sea the sand and i know that your lenses are just as important to you as the actual frames but take me through the process process, Gavin, how do you turn ghost gear into great looking eyewear? Yeah, essentially with the raw material, we collect that in two ways. So we go out as a team and remove ghost gear from the environment from around the coastline in Cornwall. Literally picking it up and collecting it Yeah, with yeah. the team of people? Yeah, so it's our team. If we get a call out, we'll drop everything and go down as a team and haul this massive net off the, off the beach. And are they huge, Gavin, these It can nets? be, yeah. It can be, can be hard work. Keeps us in shape, though. But yeah, <laughs> so we do that as a team and, well, we're starting to expand our end-of-life gear collection. So that's working with harbours and ports and the fishing community to provide an end-of-life solution what does that mean? So that's essentially, you know, having a bin or a container at the harbour where fishermen put the nets in at the end of their life, rather than having the temptation of removing it overboard or having to pay to send to landfill, we'll take it off their hands for free. So you get free material to make your glasses with and they can get rid of their unwanted nets for free as well. So it's a bit of a win-win. Exactly, yeah. And is this just all in Cornwall or are you expanding that? That's that's the goal, yeah. We've to expand that up, network. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that's the real scalable aspect for us. We're going to go from several tonnes to tens of tonnes to hundreds of tonnes is working with that end-of-life gear. But it's very important to continue tackling ghost gear, the gear that's washing up on the beaches, in the coves because that's what's causing damage in the environment every single day. And it's the ghost gear that's then being processed to make into the frames. Yes, so the ghost gear and of the end of life gear, we then take it back to our facility. We have a small recycling facility in Cornwall where it gets shredded, washed, vigorously washed, sorted and pelletized. So basically put into pellet form and from that you can injection mold it into any product and that's how we injection mold into our products that's incredible are all the nets the same kind of plastic or are you having to break them down into different kinds of plastic yeah so that's what makes it such a tricky material i've massively simplified it here it's a very uh, tricky material to deal with because there's all forms of plastic in in these nets often uh, nets and ropes and lines there's you know several types of plastic that needs to be separated out by polymer type to then be able to effectively injection mold into a product that's 
structurally sound. And presumably all the qualities of the net that make it good for fishing, I'm thinking of strength, durability, flexibility, how long it survives, also makes it a fantastic material to turn into sunglasses. Yeah, there's definitely that almost irony that the fact that this is so strong is why it's such a problem. But we're harnessing that for this new purpose. And that variation that Gavin's describing, well, actually, we also try to tap into that. And we produce batches from certain materials. We harness certain colors from certain types of net to really utilize those different properties. And we think there's a really important storytelling kind of aspect to that. And we can show that materials journey through our products. And how did you come up with the name Waterhall? After, you know, a a lot of searching and some terrible ideas, I was stumbling across the history and I came across this term, waterhall, and it describes the act of drawing in, hauling in your nets and there's no catch. So it was really kind of a negative thing to happen. But essentially what we are trying to do is haul a net without any catch out of the ocean. So we wanted to kind of repurpose that term, turn it into a positive act And it really kind of encapsulates what we are aiming to do. Fantastic. And what about the actual design of the sunglasses, Gavin? So you've separated the material, you've broken it down. I know this is a simplified version into different polymers. You've recycled it. Where does the design process start and how do you come up with the designs and the different looks and styles of the eyewear that you produce? We partner with a factory in Italy, a family-run factory who we have done from day one. And really, they're the experts when it comes to eyewear. Our backgrounds are the passion and the business, and we partner with them on the expertise. (laughs) And did you at the beginning, did you have a few false starts with it? Because this sounds to me like you've both been on a very determined, but a very steep learning curve. The day that Harry showed me the very first sound pair after all this trial and error and I couldn't believe it and that's what hooked me and I was like I'm on board with this really count me in Uh, come on you tell me your version of that 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 story (laughs) Harry the thing is yeah it's been like that and it's stayed because we've not just stayed still with trying to innovate and create products so that same process of trying to create that first pair which was such a process of trial and error in a innovative and young business that is a constant part of how you learn and how you adapt and how you grow and ultimately you need to get it wrong 19 times because the 20th time you'll maybe stumble upon something that works and so that's always kind of the approach and I think I'd love to kind of continue with that kind of approach of yeah it's okay to get it wrong quite a few times because that's how you're going to learn but ultimately it creates something that's a better product at the end of it. Do you still remember the moment when you first put on your first pair of sunglasses that you'd made that you were happy with? What did that feel like? I was so, I suppose, giddy with it that I hadn't actually got the lenses yet. So I was just wearing these frames around. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I think that probably says it all. It does. What about you, Gavin? When you actually got some maybe with lenses, what did it feel like wearing your own sunglasses? Did you really feel some kind of special moment at that point? Yeah, it was just amazing to me that fundamentally this harmful material that's deemed to have no value suddenly was in this amazing product on my face as I'm walking around 
yeah, quite a moment, really. Also, you'd seen it. You'd seen that from its initial form. And that's something that we're really trying to now communicate. And through being able to kind of process this material ourselves, we can still retain that kind of journey. And, you know, we know that this pair, we know the origin story of that, and that's really unique. And so that's something we really want to communicate and tell that traceability story because it's so much more real when you see the video and the photos of this being pulled off the beach. That suddenly gives that real connection. So can the customer have that connection? If they buy a pair of your glasses, they know perhaps which beach it came from or certainly which area it came from and what kind of net. So this is something that we're hoping to roll out in full next year. Really exciting aspect and something that's quite unique to us. So we're absolutely going to double down on it. I know that you're really proud of the frames, but you're also really proud of the lenses. Once you got your lenses, Harry, and your sunglasses, why are you so proud of the lenses as well? So got to the point we got a frame and this was just a really eye-opening kind of experience entering this eyewear industry and the aspects of sustainability within that industry, it was just shocking. The practices that were just by standard they wanted to wrap each lens in a plastic film. They wanted to package each frame in a plastic bag. And when we said no, there was just shock. No one had said this before. So we had to basically start from square one. We've cracked that first process, but now we have to kind of change all of these partners that we're working with and try and help them to change their practices. But that's also something that's been a really cool journey. So right from the beginning, we made sure there was no single-use plastic packaging within our supply chain. And that's not just what we're sending out, that's everything that's coming to us. But that actually had a trickle-down effect. So we were, at the time, a tiny customer, but we specified that we wouldn't take our lenses wrapped in any plastic. Six months later, trickled down to all of their customers in a really quite big supply chain. and. We've just entered this industry and to us, it's really obvious all of these different kind of sustainability aspects that were just hadn't been considered, but it was almost like walking into a, a new kind of world where no one had raised these issues before. So it wasn't like our work was done with the frame and we needed a lens, right? So 98% of the industry uses virgin plastic lenses. They are much cheaper, but we also wanted to think about our customer. There was the sustainability angle. And we also think, well, actually we want to create a product that we would want, something that we would really value and use. And glass was the option that we discovered and really opened our eyes to the practices, but also the potential. So glass, actually, from an optical perspective, it's vastly superior as a lens material. It's also nearly 10 times more scratch resistance than a plastic lens. And people who are out on the coastline, there's a lot of sand. And if you're out having these adventures, you need something that's going to withstand those elements. And we really saw an opportunity to change up the way things were done. And that's why we, right from the beginning, chose to use glass lenses. And we're still challenging the way things are done with those lenses to this day. 
It's great that you challenged as a very young company. For example, I thought supermarkets could have made a much bigger difference with single-use plastic a long time ago, and they're powerful. And if they tell their suppliers they won't take carrots in plastic anymore, they actually had the power to do that. But you've gone the other way around as a newcomer, setting your stall out for what you'll take and what you won't. And I'm sitting here next to a lovely pile, a little mound of cases, and that follows through to the cases that you put your sunglasses and eyewear in, doesn't it, Gavin? Yeah, yeah. So we use Portuguese cork, which in itself is, you know, sustainably sourced material and then it's just recycled aluminium to provide that strength inside. How ambitious are you Harry? Because this problem with ghost gear doesn't just happen in Cornwall, doesn't just happen in the UK, it's a global issue. So can you scale what is already a very successful business into an international business do you think and help solve the problem worldwide? That's what gives us the edge and it applies to all of our team. We know that we've got this additional kind of driver behind us. We've got this motivation that is how widespread and common this issue is and the fact that we've built this model here and we can really see its potential and we just want to scale that to be able to make a bigger dent on this issue and we need to take a kind of multifaceted approach to doing this. So part of that is engaging our community and we want them to be part of this. And we've developed some really interesting ways to empower them to be able to take action and be involved in this. And then it's also looking to the future and seeing how our model could be something that we could grow out, kind of modularize and replicate around the world to where it's really needed and be a solution that benefits not only the environment, but also people and creates new employment because we really believe that engaging with the fishing community is the best way to tackle this and taking that positive collaborative approach and creating a new economy that's around pulling plastic out of the ocean rather than putting it in will be the ultimate solution. And you've already collaborated with the Environmental Justice Foundation to bring your fishing gear recycling scheme to the coastline of Ghana. I'm just wondering why Ghana and how that came about? That was a really interesting opportunity that haphazardly came our way through a discussion that led to a grant proposal that led to this pilot project. And it really showed us the true potential of just that core concept, putting a value onto this plastic. And that was essentially the concept of this project we put a kind of deposit value onto end of life fishing gear and seeing how that ripple effect just grew over 600 fishers engaged in the project brought material and you know exchanged it for value which totally changed that cycle because there's of course there isn't recycling facilities let alone even proper kind of landfilling facilities for end of life gear in Ghana. So the impact there is really felt by the fishing community. It's impacting their livelihoods and it's something we really want to kind of grow out in the future. And so that was just the tip of the iceberg. I Did think. you get a chance to go to Ghana and see some of its action or not yet? We actually didn't, but we're we hoping didn't. to. We're hoping to. Wish, yeah. yeah. To soon. <laughs> and just seeing the footage of this incredible drone shot flying over the beach and you see the boats and then you see the fishing gear and then you just see the multicolored kind of specks all across the sand and it's just plastic on another level. So that's next. That's our ambition. That's to, a real to taste this. of what you could do. And also you've, you've got a project going in Pembrokeshire as well, haven't you? 
Yeah, exactly that and other pilot schemes. We've partnered with five harbours like, along the, the coast of Pembrokeshire uh, to do exactly as I was saying with the end of life solution. So providing bins for fishermen to responsibly dispose of their nets. And that was a massive success as well. And that is ongoing. How does it go down with them? Because fishermen, and again, I say that coming from a fishing community, fishing people can be stuck in their ways and they, you know, it's done, been done like this for decades and this is how we do things. Have you found it's had to be a gentle, gentle approach and that you've eventually changed their mindset or have they been game from the beginning to jump in? Yeah, I think a, a bit of both really, but most of them, they don't want to be throwing nets overboard. Most of them care about the ocean that they spend their lives on. And therefore, just by providing this free solution for the end of life of their nets, it's a win-win, really. So actually, not much resistance from, from the fishing industry. And they want to work with us and we want to work with them. Working together, I think, is so important. You touched on the power of community. And I love on your website, Harry, that you've shared some of what you call your waterhall stories, which demonstrate that power of community. Just tell us a bit about the sorts of things that you get up to and how important community engagement is to you. I think about two years in, we heard this recurring question. It was, how can I be part of what you're doing? It was clear that the mission really inspired people. And so we wanted to find a way to kind of empower those people and build a community. So we started with this concept of creating a litter picker out of the plastic that we're collecting from the coastline itself. And, you know, it's the tool to tackle the problem made out of the problem. We'd seen, you know, through our experiences at Surface Against Sewage, just how many people were out there using these but they were the problem itself. So we just saw that this could be a really inspiring kind of use of our material. And it worked really nicely as well because, you know, it's a simple product in comparison to eyewear. So it allows us to use a really kind of broad range of plastics. We have to be much less picky. We can get away with more contamination than we do with our eyewear with this more simple product. And we launched those to our, our network, to our community. And we were just blown away by the response. And it was really the thing that enabled people to be part of it and really multiply that impact. It's such a fantastic thought to think that we've sold, I think, 35,000 of these litter pickers. Each of those litter pickers took 100 grams of fishing gear to, for us to create. But in the hands of those fantastic people who are out there, they're out there collecting 5, 10, 25 kilograms of more plastic. And it really just grows exponentially the impact that we can have. And this is such a big issue. We have to educate, inspire and involve people to join it. Otherwise, we're just, we're never going to get there. And I'd imagine kids will join in too, will they? Absolutely. That is something that the next generation absolutely just jump on. And they are leading the charge in this fight. And they just instantly know that this plastic shouldn't be there. It's almost ingrained in us. And so that's a really inspiring part of what we're able to do is to give them the tools to just go out there and take action. What are the challenges, would you say, Gavin, that you faced as a startup? Well, um, <laughs> that's a big question, got, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, is that a different <laughs> podcast in itself? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
we moved into the eyewear industry, which is innately a very wasteful industry that hadn't really had anyone saying no to single-use plastic. So that was a major barrier from the outset and something that we're continually working on within the industry and pushing that change. Obviously, all the typical barriers you have to startups, but one of the things that we're really proud of is that we've bootstrapped our whole way. So up until this moment, we haven't received investment and we continually reinvested our money into our impact, essentially. And I guess that's come of its challenges too. You've spoken openly on well on forums that I've seen on the internet, Harry, that you've generated two million in revenue so far, which is pretty impressive for a young company. But where do you go now? Is it the dragon's den of funding rounds now? And are you seeking investment so that you can grow and scale? That's exactly where we are now. We've seen through the progress that we've made to date just how big this opportunity could be. And that's ultimately driven by the size of the problem too. And so we need to scale this in order to have the biggest impact that we can do. So that's why we're now taking that that first step to raise investment. And we're bringing people on board who have been through similar journeys in terms of the business angles, but also revolving our community to be part of it. They've been along with us every step of the way. And so it only really feels right to be able to kind of have them as part of that opportunity too. So we're actually doing a Crowdcube raise, which will enable our community to invest and essentially own part of Waterhall from a list as little as £10. And so having that kind of accessible option and being able to have our community help drive that next stage is something that we're really proud of. Do you have sleepless nights, Harry, about what happens if the ocean plastic situation isn't taken seriously? Because you and Gavin and your team are making fantastic strides here from your base in Cornwall. But this is a global problem. And where are we with the plastic crisis? Gavin, you could see his nod when you said (laughs) sleepless nights. Um, I think there's so much positivity that we can take from what's happened in this journey from the past five years things have really started to gain momentum and I think we really felt that I think we all took a bit of a knock on this journey against plastic pollution as we moved into the pandemic suddenly there was a shift in priorities of course and plastic was part of our response to tackling the pandemic but we suddenly began to see a new wave of plastic all over our coastline, all of these face masks washing up all across our beaches. It was a real blip there. We actually pivoted and switched our recycling for a few months to recycling face masks. We collaborated with our local NHS hospital as part of that response and transformed them into our litter pickers, again, to kind of tackle that problem that was out there. But now we're trying to pick up that momentum again and really educate at the core of this. We've always tried to also develop that educational aspect of what we do. We actually have a scaled down version of our recycling process that we can take into schools, take to workshops and events that is really hands-on. You literally have to shred the plastic yourself and you get to see firsthand that transformation from waste into something that's you know useful and valuable. And so I think education is where we have to really focus broader to create that 
desire and that drive to tackle this problem because it's just so prevalent. And Gavin, presumably when you've got this recycling process nailed as you have, if you didn't want to, you don't have to stick to eyewear, do you? Presumably this recycled plastic, the polymers could be used to make all sorts of things. Yeah, exactly. So once it's in the pelletized form, we can create anything, you know, any hard plastic product out of it essentially and so the applications are endless really it's often trying to contain ourselves a little bit on that front but in itself that plastic can be used for a lot of things which is exciting in Mm. itself and harry tell me about some of the collaborations that you're doing so these have been you know really broad ranging and essentially they've all been around trying to find how our process can be adapted to solve broad kind of challenges. So one that we're really proud of is working with the RNLI. They had over 10 tons of this tow rope that they were decommissioning, but it was still in great condition. It was more of a safety upgrade rather than there was anything wrong with this, but it was going to be sent to landfill, but ropes are something that we deal with day in, day out. And so we saw this opportunity and we formed this collaboration. It's led to some really exciting things. One of those is that we were developing a knife anyway. It was something that we used as a tool to collect, cut free all of these nets from the coastline. We had to use it in our sorting process and it just felt wrong using these virgin plastic knives. We saw, well, that's actually something that's really useful, something that you really value. So we started creating these, but that collaboration has now developed to the point where we're actually creating the knives that will be attached to every RNLI life jacket on board their life-saving vessels. And there's that story of that tow rope. I'm sure there's lives that have been saved initially by that material. And now we're taking that into that form that's going to be on a life jacket. And there's going to be even more stories out of those. That's something we're really proud of. I think your story is fascinating. I wish you lots of luck with it in the future. Your sunglasses are great. The eyewear is really good looking and you can see why people would like to own a piece of what you're making. It's got feel good written all over it for so many different reasons. We've been ending this season, if you like, a podcast by asking every guest what the biggest risk they've ever taken in their life. So, Gavin, I'm going to look to you first. So, Harry gets a chance to have a think about it. What's the biggest risk you've ever taken? It can be anything from your childhood to adult life. Blimey, that's a tough one. Is that a tough Uh, one? Yeah, it really is. This is the bit Um, when I realised I probably didn't tell you I was going to ask you that, which I normally do, so apologies. A a heads up on that. Um, (laughs) Biggest risk, the biggest risk, I actually think it's probably going to be a bit cliché. But I remember when me and Harry were sat in a Weatherspoons one evening and, we had a, <laughs> <laughs> and the biggest risk was, do we get a Jaeger bomb? No. no. Um, it was, uh, we were working full time in our jobs and doing water almost full time as well. And we were at that point, like, do we jump? Do we do it? And there was a lot of back and forth over a few pints. and Over and several years. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and we made that decision to do it. And that was a huge risk. We'd spent our degrees and, you know, our educational background building up to getting the roles that we had. It's something that we're really proud of. Certainly, I just felt like, am I going to drop all that to go into business with this guy? And yeah, I didn't regret it. That's fantastic. Harry, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? And what, and did it involve being in Weatherspoons? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the first thing that came to mind was hiring Gavin. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's also that aspect of 
I think three weeks after that conversation and deciding to go for it, COVID hit. And there was that moment of we've just quit our jobs. The world seems to be, you know, <laughs> collapsing in on itself. So that was a bit of a crazy moment. There was a moment where I had to hit certain minimum order quantities to make this happen, to produce that first batch. And there was no way I could get around it. And I was looking for alternatives for, you know, weeks and weeks, but essentially I had to bite the bullet and I had to put every penny that I owned at the time, which wasn't that much, but all of it to go on this first production batch. And I had no idea if I'd just gone a bit crazy and if anyone was ever going to buy any of these. I remember that first package arriving and it was quite an overwhelming kind of feeling, but ultimately people got what I was trying to do. And with Gavin's help, this started to grow out. And yeah, here we are today. And do you still go kayaking with Gavin? <laughs> yeah, we've still got this kind of pink kayak that is kind of falling <laughs> apart, but it's been on some <laughs> adventures over the years and hopefully there's a few more to come. Well, I'm sure there's lots <laughs> more to come. It's been a, a real pleasure to meet both of you. I hope it goes really well and I'm looking forward to watching you expand as well. You've done great things in Cornwall and I'm sure you can help this problem well all over the world as you as you get your various investments and grow. So thank you so much for having me, both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to marine conservationists Harry Dennis and Gavin Parker, co-founders of Waterhall, who make sunglasses and eyewear frames out of abandoned, unwanted fishing nets. Download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation. You'll find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. I'll be back next week. Join me then. Convex.